There's no doubt that this election happening in less than a month holds extremely high stakes. But though the stakes are high, the US has one of the lowest voter turnouts in the developed world at about just 55% of the US voting age population. Sure, a case here and there can be blamed on a person's laziness and or general disinterest in politics. But the biggest reason is that voting in America is hard. To paint a picture of how millions of Americans are denied the right to vote, I'm joined by Latosha Brown, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, a fellow and affiliate of various Herbert centers, and a key person in encouraging votes and making sure that they count. Though the picture is bleak, we start on a rather positive note with a question of what is giving her hope right now. I'm Zoya Soroy and you're joining me on The Dive, where we bring you experts from Harvard and beyond to break down the most interesting, complex and newsy issues out there. What gives me hope, um, quite frankly, are um, our people. You know, what I have been seeing, I have been seeing it. I am clear it is more of us that are on the side that want to literally strengthen democracy in this country, that believe in democracy, that believe in human life and human value, that are literally, I certainly believe it's more of us. You know, the question, I think the other big challenge is, are we going to come out and vote in the numbers that we need in spite of the voter suppression? Because that's another thing that concerns me so much. I will say what we've seen in the last couple of months, we saw the largest uprising ever in the history of this country in all 50 states that was multi-generational, that was multiracial. We do not need to underestimate the power when people come together. And so what gives me hope is that every day my phone is bombarded with phone calls and messages and texts of people saying, hey, how can I help? You know, what is it that I can do to help? So I think that there is a certain kind of energy out there that people know that this is a critical election. And I love that story um, that, that you told about going to vote with your grandmother and how you learned that voting meant something more by just watching her. And, and although you were very young, can you tell that story? I can. You know, I often tell my grandmother was, I was raised in Alabama. My grandmother was born in 1910. I'm thinking to myself, I was like, my grandmother would have been 110 years old. She was still living. Uh, was born in 1910, and the majority of her life, she was unable to vote. You know, And as um, she helped raise me, um, and she would, you know, we love women um, who love purses, and I am one of them, <laughs> that we love our bags, right? And we've got, we got purses that we have like a day-to-day bag, and then we've got our purse that, you know, your special event, right? And for her, it was church. And so she didn't call it a purse. She called it a pocketbook. And so, you know, she would, when elections would happen, she didn't drive, my grandfather drove. Um, when elections would happen, she would dress up. She would dress me up and she would go and get her good pocketbook. Cause I knew we were going somewhere special if she was taking her good pocketbook. She would get her, her, her favorite, her good pocketbook and put on her arm and take me by the hand. We would go vote. And she is so funny. She never told me, 
you know, she never talked to me about what voting was, right? But I knew from my experience with her, the way that she walked in, the way that she held her head up, the way that we were dressed, the way that she held my hand, I knew that we were doing something that meant a lot to her. That I knew it was something special and I knew it was some power behind it. I could tell that she even felt, felt some sense of power and pride behind it. And so I guess it worked because my whole adult life, I've been, it's been dedicated towards tapping into that power and reminding people of that power of the vote. You know, so I think, you know, it, as I think about that, even my grandmother, you know, I think about, you know, by the time, you know, in, in 1965, my grandmother was 55 years old. You know, um, here it is a woman that it was, was older than I am now that um, for the first time that she voted was after she was going close to 60 years old. You know, and and it's not, and, and I always like to tell that story because that wasn't that long ago, y'all. <laughs> like, this is my grandmother, right? That wasn't that long ago. And so there has been this this effort, I think, to, to marginalize the Black vote. This strategy of marginalizing votes is referred to as voter suppression. But voter suppression as an idea seems so broad to me. To find out what exactly falls under this umbrella, I turn to Tova Wang. Tova is the current fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School Ash Center. She has spent over 20 years in the field and has also written a very illuminating book on the subject called The Politics of Voter Suppression. She also turns out to be a very big LeBron James fan. So voter suppression, generally speaking, is any effort to deny the person's, a person's ability to register or vote. Um, but it becomes a little bit more complicated than that because there are, is more, much more than one kind of voter suppression. I think when people think about that, they think of sort of um, Jim Crow era kinds of voter intimidation and disenfranchisement. Um, and there is some of this that still goes on. I mean, things that actively and overtly uh, serve to disenfranchise people. I would put, um, you know, defunding the U.S. Postal Service in the category of being very obviously a mechanism for decreasing voter Since this summer, the U.S. Um, Postal Office keeps making the headlines. Not only did the agency take a big financial hit from the virus, but it's also expected to play a historic role in this year's elections, with more people relying on mail-in voting. The Democrats are pushing for millions in financial relief to help the office in this process, but the president is opposing all that. They're asking for $25 billion for the post office, where they're not going to get the $3.5 billion. Therefore, they can't do the universal mail-in vote. It's very simple. And there is still voter intimidation that goes on. You'll, you know, there's discussion as there has been for several years of people with who armed people going to the, uh, the polling places and all of that kind of thing. But then there's another set of uh, voter suppression mechanisms that are actually written into the law. And so those are things like um, voter identification laws that are written um, purposely uh, so that they include uh, only types of ID that certain people have and that people of color and young people are, are not likely to have. Um, felony disenfranchisement, where millions of people in this country are, are not allowed to vote because 
Um, they committed a felony at some time in their their uh, lives, and certainly um, laws that make, especially now, laws that make voting by mail incredibly difficult. Um, things like requiring uh, it to be signed by, the, by a notary um, at the time in a time of the pandemic, or not allowing people to use um, coronavirus as a reason for wanting to vote by mail. So those are things that are written into laws um, that have been upheld by courts um, that are also voter intimidation. Um, of course, throughout history, it's been directed at African-Americans in particular, that's obvious and continues to be, uh, racial discrimination continues to be the uh, impetus for the majority, I would say, of uh, voter suppression, but also young people and um, other kinds of uh, people of color, uh, Latinx immigrants. But I will say that young people are also heavily targeted, especially by things like student, uh, I'm sorry, by voter ID laws. Um, and also another form of sort of legalized suppression is things like requiring someone to be registered to vote in their jurisdiction 30 days or 25 days before the election. So many people, I mean, I'm saying, I'm thinking most people don't even realize that they have to register to vote again if they move, even move like a block away. And so for young people to have to re-register to vote every time they move. We have seen over the last 20 years a constriction on who has the right to use that right. We have seen it through voter ID laws. You can't get on the rolls, and if you get on the rolls, you can't stay. You may not be able to cast your ballot because they close your precinct or they change the rules. That's rigging the game. Now the support around um, tactics that um, lead to voter suppression is very much um, backed by this idea that it's uh, it's there to prevent fraudulent elections, that somebody might steal the vote, etc. How much um, fraud is there in, in U.S. elections? So, you know, after 20 years of working on this issue, I will <laughs> try to avoid using an expletive on your program, but it's such bull. Um, we have been doing research on the, um, how much voter fraud there is in the system all these 20 years and repeatedly study after study after study, data from the Department of Justice itself, um, state law enforcement has demonstrated again and again that voter fraud is incredibly rare. <laughs> um, and yet it is trotted out every election year as the excuse to do any number of things that are not at all helpful either to reduce any, you know, so-called fraud. They don't really do that anyway and do a lot to disenfranchise a ton of people. Um, you know, this goes back years and years of um, Republicans using the canard of uh, there being voter fraud lurking in the shadows everywhere you look um, to enact um, disenfranchising laws. For Latosha Brown, these strategies of keeping voters from mattering in the name of voter fraud which, as Tova Wang explained, happens to be very low in the United States, is all too familiar. There was, however, an instance in 1998 that made these tactics very personal for her. I was running for office in 1998, and I was running statewide. I was a young woman in my late 20s. I had never run a statewide campaign before. But, you know, I always tell people that's when I really realized that I'm really an organizer. I was like, I might not know the other details, but 
if you if you connect with people on the ground directly, it is amazing how much um, ground you can gain. And so in that election, I ran, the election was extremely close. Um, I was an underdog candidate that came up from behind and quite frankly was um, slated to, to win this election. I was running against a 12 year incumbent. And so it was a very, it was a very intense race. So on election night, it was so close that they couldn't call it, that it kept going back and forth between myself and my opponent. And so it took them seven days to sort out the votes. Um, on the seventh day, it was determined that I was 100 out of 80-something thousand votes. I was 131 votes um, uh, down, that my candidate had 131 votes more than I had. And so, I, you know, I accepted that that's what the numbers were and, you know, and and, and congratulate my, my opponent. Um, but that same day, the, at 12.05, uh, my mentor called me and told me to brace myself. And at 12.06, I got a phone call from the chair of the Democratic Party informing me that the sheriff in Wilcox County, which is one of the counties that I ran and one of the counties, quite frankly, that I won, had forgotten that he had 800 absentee ballots that he had placed up in um, the safe. And I guess conveniently, he remembered and was able to recall that he had these ballots five minutes after the race was actually certified. Well, me and my naivety, I just figured, I was like, oh, well, you know, you got them now and, you know, they're legitimate ballots. So, you know, let's count them. And the and, and Giles Perkins, he was the chair of the Democratic Party for Alabama. He said, I'm sorry, that's the race is already certified. And I said, well, I don't, I mean, what does that mean? It means that we can't count them. And so I remember in that moment, that's one of the few moments in my life that I felt powerless, that here it is, you know, they stole this election, right? There's nothing that I can do about it. You know, and he ultimately said, well, you can take it to court, but quite frankly, you know, it's extremely expensive and costly. I didn't have the kind of resources. I barely had enough money to finish the campaign out. Um, and I, and usually those cases are very, very hard to overturn. Had I known what I know now, um, I should have fought it, but in the moment, it just seemed like such a, a, a heel to overcome, um, based on the resources that were needed. And so as a result, what, you know, at that moment, what I realized, and it wasn't just that time, you know, there were several other races that I've been involved in with other candidates, with other races that I've seen that, that I saw how common voter suppression is. Um, and we've allowed it to continue to go on and on. You know, the, there's a report that the Brennan Center did that from 2016 to 2018, 17 million people were dropped from the voting rolls. Now, some of those folks are people who had died and 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 for other circumstances taken off the rolls, but a, a vast majority of those folks were people who are eligible voters that should not have been taken off, right? Many of those folks, not, not the majority, many of those people should not have been taken off. But then you come back and look at Georgia, which most recently there's a report and we're actually doing some work around this where 200,000 eligible voters were un, uh, were illegally dropped from the voting rolls um, in the 2018 election, and they still have not been replaced on. Georgia said it removed the voters from the registration rolls because they had moved, which in fact they didn't. But this isn't the only case. Under a law that is called Use It or Lose It, Georgia routinely removes people from registration rolls 
who they think were inactive. Since 2017, it has aggressively removed names from the roles. In that year alone, it removed more than 530,000 voters, causing it to be one of the biggest purges in US history. Voting rights advocates say this is voter suppression because the names that are removed are disproportionately of young voters and people of color. Right, and most of those were uh, uh, voters of color. So voter suppression is real, it is rampant, it is growing. I think it is single is the single biggest threat to democracy in this country. It undermines the whole fundamental belief that all citizens count and matter and that literally our vote should count. And so we really have to look at voter suppression to the scale and in the different ways that it shows up. But why is one party linked to it more than the other? Well, it's a partisan issue because over the last many years, um, it has been the domain of the Republican Party that has used disenfranchisement, quite honestly, as a strategy and a tactic for winning elections. And so as part of their strategy, their campaign strategy, a part of it is to try to exclude certain members of the electorate from getting to have their vote cast and counted. And so to the extent that it's partisan, it's a simple reality. I mean, it's just facts that has been Republican state legislators in particular who have created the conditions where so many people are disenfranchised. There are a couple of things that have happened in the last 20 years. Um, first is in the year 2000, you had Bush, Bush versus Gore, um, which some of the audience may not be old enough to remember, but hopefully knows about. So we got to look under the hood in a way people never had before or never really cared about. And so there was a new kind of insider knowledge of how you can mess things up for another person. Um, the other piece of it was in 2010, um, there was a tidal wave basically of Republican takeovers of state legislatures. And you saw, saw sort of this tsunami of voting related legislation that was passed in many states that year. Um, that were meant to disenfranchise people. And then came the Supreme Court decision that critics say opened the floodgates for voter suppression. The third thing is in 2013, the Supreme Court struck down the voting, a big part of the Voting Rights Act in Shelby versus Holder. According to the Voting Rights Act, or a provision of it, States that had a history of racism had to go and get the okay of federal officials before they could enact new voting laws. That was struck down. Now states could enact all the laws they want, and if you want to fight them, you have to go after them in courts. Uh, well, the, the reasoning of the 5-4 to four decision um, was, you know, essentially, we're over it. We're all good now. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it looks even more absurd sitting here today on August 27th. I mean, now what you require, well, first of all, you need to know about it. And then once you know about it, um, it requires individuals, organizations, um, sometimes the political, political parties to bring what are called Section 2 lawsuits, which are difficult and expensive to bring. And as you just said, are come after the fact. So it's almost like you have to wait for someone to be disenfranchised or for people to be disenfranchised in order to do anything legally. Um, so that's obviously hugely problematic. And I will say that, uh, and it's been much discussed 
um, happily in the, the it, certainly in the presidential primaries and even now about the need to um, pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, um, which would restore and improve upon, actually update many elements of the Voting Rights Act. And that is um, just very, uh, very high up on the to-do list for uh, a new administration. A lot of people have made this parallel between Obama's successful two-term um, victories and the rise of um, re-rise of, of voter uh, suppression. Is it that clear of a link? Well, I mean, all, a lot of this predates Obama, but there's no um, question that it was right after his election, and it was no coincidence that 2010 was the year where you saw this huge slew of new restrictive voting laws. Um, it was a pretty clear connection um, between uh, our first black president being elected and laws being enacted by Republican legislatures making it harder for black people to vote. What these laws do, however, is not only make it very hard for people to vote, but also discourage people from voting. And Latosha Brown is at the forefront of fighting both issues. What do you think has been the most effective reminder or the most effective tool when you've been going around the country many, many times over again to, to um, activate people to vote? That's an excellent question. There's three things. The first thing is we change where the center of gravity is. That part of what we've been telling people is that their vote matter. Particularly, I tell this all the time, tell people this all the time. We named our organization Black Voters Matter, not Black Votes Matter, because there are people that care about Black votes but don't care about Black voters, right? And so fundamentally, we have to shift where the focal point is. The, the power isn't in the vote. The power is with the people to the extent that the people are using the vote as an agency, a sense of their agency. That's where the power lies. And so, so when we have a conversation, we center folks and we say, you know, when they were like, well, my vote doesn't matter. And they may go through the process. We're like, but well, you matter. Right. And so fundamentally, not only do you matter, but someone is going to make a decision related to your life. Would you do you think it's better if you're a part of that process or not a part of that process? Right. And so I think the second part of it is one, making sure that the focal point is based on people that they matter, reminding them they matter and that they have power. And then two, helping to make the connectivity to their day to day lives. How is politics going to impact my life? So oftentimes when we're talking to folks, you know, the, sometimes the presidential office is just too far removed from them to really be able to figure out how does that impact my life. But I've not met anybody that didn't care about something. And so most of the folks that we talk to, what we do is we listen, that we ask them, well, what is it that you care about? We don't like if you don't if you saying that you don't want to talk about voting, tell us what it is that you care about. And normally after there's a discussion and they're talking about what they care about, and we're able to say, well, what is it that you want to, you know, you care about this so passionately. What is it that you want to see? And they share their vision of what we, they want to see when we're able to make a connection of how voting will help get them closer to that. So if, it, if they want to see different kind of DAs, we're like, well, you know how DA gets in power, right? You know, it makes it real for them. And so I think sometimes we have to demystify the process to help people see how their vote is going to connect or influence something they care about in their day-to-day -day lives. And I think the third thing is we're authentic and honest with folks about understanding 
both the limitations of voting because there are folks that go around and every problem, just vote, just vote, as if their problems are going to magically go away. And we all know that that's not true. But what we do is in that process, we are honest and authentic with them about the limitations of voting, but also being very clear about them, about the leverage and the power of voting. And so being able to, those two true are true, that there is a limitations of influence, but it is absolutely influence. And so I think when you're talking to folks in a way that they know that you're being honest, that you're being authentic, you're helping them to make the day-to-day connection, because oftentimes you know, unless you're political junkies like us, you know, folks are not thinking about politics. They're thinking about their job. They're thinking about what they got to do. This is not on their mind. And so we have to really help break down the process where they can see themselves and their own power in. Right. And in this uh, process also, um, um, what I found really helpful that, that you advocate is that don't look for the you know, perfect candidate. Like it's not, you know, sometimes people, you, you just don't get the luxury if you're not in the majority to get the candidate that completely sort of um, um, represents whatever you, you represent also. So you vote for, for somebody who you think is, it's a, like a strategic process, not only like a um, emotional process. Absolutely. I think that's the other piece, too, which is why, you know, kind of what I was talking about shifting the focal point. You know, we we have set set this up as if we're waiting for the next savior to come on a white horse and be on the ticket. Right. And when the truth of the matter is, you know, all of us have some flaws and some of the candidates are deeply flawed. You know what people have to look at voting is making a tactical choice. Right. That you're not. You Oftentimes I know from someone of who's voted in many, many elections in the deep South, that's very, very rare that I can say that I have the candidate that's perfect in the, in all the areas that I want them to be on, you know? Um, and so I think that we have to do two things. The first thing is I think that we have to look at and make a choice around who's best aligned with both protecting our communities and also with the agenda that we have now. I think the second thing we have to do is we also have to create a leadership pipeline that we are creating and giving space though for to see new candidates i think part of what aoc and um ayana presley and omar they brought it they were a different kind of candidate and people were excited to see that and they've had a following they actually activated new voters because they showed up in a different kind of space and so i think we have to do both on one hand in the immediate we have to literally be able to respond to what we have before us And two, we also have to build a leadership pipeline that would actually be more inclusive and of of building a representative democracy. So you start seeing candidates that actually look more, sound more, have the same values of those communities that we're going to talk to about going out to vote. And many people are quick to um, characterize voter suppression with one party, namely the Republican one. But you think that voter suppression goes above and beyond partisanship. What is the underlying truth um, um, behind this topic? The underlying truth in America, and we're going to be honest, is that people in power have always seen themselves as staying in power by suppressing those uh, that threaten their power. And so we've seen that on both the Democratic side, we've seen it on the Republican side. I think we see it most in most recent years. It's more egregious 
with Republicans because I think that the Republicans have lost their base. I think that they've imploded, quite frankly. You know, I think that there are far more Americans um, that are aligned with a strategy that the Republican platform um, does is not reflected in the Republican platform, right? And so I think when we're talking about voter suppression, let's be honest about there's been a history of of both political parties being complicit in it. Some have been more active than others, but complicit in the process because really what voting is about is about power. The bottom line is, I think that we need also to strengthen what protects the individual rights of citizens, which is why I am still going to say that I believe we need to have a department of democracy that is fundamentally set up in an independent nature. Like my right to vote should not be contingent upon whether the Democrats or the Republicans are in office. My protection as a voter should not be contingent upon that. And so we still have this element, in my opinion, that's integrated in this process that is too rooted in partisan power and not the part and not power of citizens as a voter. I think we need to have a voter's bill of rights. I think that we have got to find ways to enshrine that the ultimate power in this country rests not with the political parties, but rests with the people. And so while the Constitution says that we need stronger mechanisms, because I think that's been un- unraveled um, over time. And I think the parties have, quite frankly, um, embedded themselves in their power in such a way that they are in perpetual power o- outside of um, that is even now, in my opinion, eclipsing the power of people. Latosha Brown, thank you so much for being on the dive. Thank you for having me. Um, and thank you for letting us just dive on in um, and talk about what matters. Thank you so much for tuning in. For the most recent news, subscribe and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is The Dive Podcast. Bye.